There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today is Pole Position. Uh, and of course, we are going down the Second World War route. Alex has finally allowed me to bring in some World War II history. So we've gone out and found something completely outside of the box. And I'm really excited about this. But it's not just going to be me today doing hosting. I've got Tim, who's uh, who runs the Chris Siberia account. Many of you have probably come across him one point or another. Hi, Tim. Hi. So Thanks for the invite. Great. It's going to be you and me hosting this one. Our guest today is Anurada Bhattacharji. Um, she is a former journalist, an LSE alumni, and she wrote her PhD on the second homeland, basically Polish refugees in India. I mean, I'm going to tell you this right now. I have never heard of Polish refugees in India, so I'm so excited to know so much more. Hi, Anurada. How are you? I'm very well. Hello, Lena, and thank you so much for having me on the show. This is so outside of the box. I mean, when we listen and we talk about refugees that have come from the Soviet Union, Polish refugees, you usually think uh, Israel or, for example, Africa or, or, you know, just not India, if you know what I mean. um, They came to India from these countries. They they came to India primarily from, they were Polish who came out of uh, USSR. I mean, they, they, they were evacuated by the Sek- Anders Army. And uh, they found a home in India courtesy the offer of an Indian prince. And uh, to it, should, should I go get back into the history properly? Well, let's, or, let's, uh, let's start, I think, with uh, a little bit of background information. So what is the situation in Europe? If you just give us a really brief summary of where we are with all of this. Uh, well, uh, this, uh, the, the Polish uh, people who reached India, the primarily the children, the orphan children who reached India was in uh, 1942. So 1942 is the thick of the Second World War. The Polish government had become the Polish government in exile at London at that time. And uh, major parts of India were largely under British rule. Now, here is one thing that I must flag. Mostly people think the entire India was under British uh, rule, British domination at that time, which is actually not really correct. We had over 500 uh, Indian states, uh, princely states, that were largely independent. Of course, uh, you know, their their military and Briti- uh, diplomatic powers were, were curbed by the British, and they had uh, sworn allegiance to the British crown, but they were Indian states, and uh, they together were, had been formed into a body called the Chamber of Princes, and they regularly parleyed with the British. Uh, there were several uh, Indian states, uh, Hyderabad, uh, uh, Travancore, and amongst them, the ones who, which are most rel- uh, related to the history of Poland are Navanagar, Kolhapur, Patiala, and Baroda. And Another part that's pretty, okay, if anybody who is more interested in knowing about the history of the Indian states could refer to Professor Ian Copeland's book, Princes of India and Game of an Empire. They had been formed into the Chamber of Princes and there was a Chancellor. And um, so Navanagar was pretty active in that in that scheme of things. So do you want me to continue how how the Polish story happened or or would that be another question yeah no do you know what let's uh let's touch on actually how poles ended up in india okay uh that's actually a very very interesting story because it, it goes back to the first world war or the interwar years rather when uh, poland had just emerged as a uh, nation state after 123 years here i'm i'm citing professor norman davies so if I'm wrong, my apologies in advance. 
<laughs> because I'm no historian of the history of Poland, you know. That's yeah. Norman Davis has is is the god of all Polish history. So whatever he says, you know, let's roll it's with God. it. Let's roll it's, with it's it. It's gospel truth. So he's the one I've referred to. So he says that Poland had emerged as a nation state after 123 years. So I take it as gospel truth. And uh, just as Poland had emerged and then the League of Nations celebrations had started. Um, so India was being represented by the the chancellor of the Chamber of Princes, which I just mentioned uh, a little while ago. And the chancellor was Maharaja Ganga Singh of Bikaner and Maharaja Ranjit Singh of Navanagar. Uh, Many people would remember, you know, those who are interested in cricket might know him. He he was a very avid cricketer. Ah. Yeah. So he was known as Ranji in 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 the UK. Uh, so Ranji used to deputize for Maharaja Ganga Singh of Bikaner pretty often because by then, you know, he was kind of getting on in age and health issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Ranji, because of his, you know, cricket and you know, generally he 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 was very very almost British. He had a chateau in uh, Switzerland, and there his neighbor down the road was Monsieur Ignacy Padrevsky. Huh. Do I need to 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 introduce him to a Polish? Population? Do you know what the way we're going? Brilliant. Tell us who he was because not everyone's going to know. Um, our Polish listeners will, but we've got a lot of people that aren't Polish that are listening to the podcast, so I think it might be worthwhile you telling them who he is. Okay. Monsieur Ignacy Padrewski, he was a very famous pianist and later on became one of the premiers, prime ministers, if I recall right, of, of Poland. So in Switzerland, uh, they were very well acquainted, Ranji and uh, Monsieur Padrewski. And Maharaja Digvijay Singhji was the crown prince of Navanagar at that time. And so he often got to spend a lot of time with Ranji in Switzerland to learn statecraft in those years. So when he inherited the state from Ranji a couple of years later, so he, along with the state, he also inherited a very good social circle, which included um, Monsieur Padrewski. And then, you know, cut, we cut it here into warriors and we get to the right to, up to the Second World War. And, uh, so somewhere, now, so Maharaja Digvijay Singhji by then is the Chancellor of the Chamber of Princes. So he becomes the representative of India, the Imperial War Cabinet, etc. And there in the middle of the world, the Polish government of, uh, in exile is, is negotiating with the British, um, you know, telling them about the terrible time that, that the population is having in, in Soviet Russia. Uh, and, and they need help evacuating the people, the citizenry out from there. And uh, the British are like uh, a little reluctant, citing primarily lack of a destination as one of the chief reasons, like, oh, how can we help? But you know, where, where do we send them in these kind of wartime situations? So these uh, during these meetings, one of these meetings, um, I think they were together, uh, Maharaja Digvijay Singhji as the uh, chancellor of the COP and in the, a member of the Imperial War Cabinet and Maseo Ignacy Padrewski. And... Uh, you know, through the lunch, I mean, that's what the family says, that, you know, it was during the lunch break that they had a had a quick word. And, you know, in a very typical Darbari style, he just said, look, if a destination is what is needed, treat my state as yours and, you know, send your people over. But since I have, you know, my predecessors have signed away the diplomatic rights, uh, you guys will have to kind of figure it out with the British but, uh, you know, whatever the, I mean, whatever that needs to be done, my state is yours. I like that. I really like that whole, what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine, if that makes sense. If that makes sense. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have a philosophy, we have a very traditional 
Sanskrit philosophy, you know, it says Vasudeva Kutumbakam. It means the whole world is family. And uh, this this entire history is actually a, a living example of that Indian philosophy. So um, then once the this news kind of spread within the Polish circles that, okay, we have a potential uh, um, place in India, whatever, the formalities started getting done. He was asked to write a letter of invitation. So I think there was some pressure. So he just wrote a letter of invitation for 500 children first. And of course, he, he wrote another invitation for another 500 children later on because there were pressures, you know, about how much India can take because the British were very, were very reluctant, you know, about what are the kind of uh, pressure that, you know, a large number of um, exiled people would put. But, but it, you know, over here, I would actually like to make a point that there were other exiles also who were coming into India because we have evidence of people coming from the Balkans, uh, from Burma, from from... The, the Jewish transit coming from, from China, etc. Because there was the office of the principal refugee officer. Yes, Maltese. So there were all kinds of people who were coming to India. Now, I don't it's, really know what exactly... Sorry? No, um, I'm just going to say that it's it's fascinating and it runs counter to what people might have assumed based on the Iranian experience them they might have assumed that it was enforced uh from the top down from the british rather um so this is such a a wonderful corrective to that so did the british fund these camps or have any involvement in running them i'm actually on the contrary very much on the contrary uh i don't know about the other camps for other nationalities but uh, for the Polish children, charitable funds were raised in India. Uh, th- there was a fund set up called the Polish Children's Fund, which was set up by the Viceroy with the first contribution of rupees 50,000. And that account was held with the Imperial Bank of India. And there were many, many, many subscribers to it for whatever amounts of money that they could spare. The arrangement was that uh, the, these funds would be raised in India for uh, the upkeep of the Polish children. And uh, the Polish government in exile had agreed to defray any any shortfall between what was raised and what was actually uh, spent in taking care of these uh, children. But I'm very, very proud to, you know, say and as an Indian that actually the Polish government in exile was never called upon to, to you know, meet any money for this. The The Indians... There is a letter. It is there reproduced in the book. Uh, the Indians uh, contributed uh, in excess of rupees 600,000. And this we are talking about uh, 1942, which roughly translated to approximately 29,500 uh, pounds sterling at wow. that time. Yes. And in today's terms, I did some rough back of the envelope calculations using a website, authorized website, it amounts to about 1.5 million euros in real wow. value terms in wow. That's absolutely incredible. I mean, this is, I'm sitting here listening to this and thinking, wow, we really have to thank India for, for what they did. I mean, 1.5 million euro, even in today's standard, that's an incredible amount of money. Well, thank you. I, I, I thank you. As an engine. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we did manage to put that together. It, the, it was a fund was man- was subscribed to by anybody who wanted to. And as an Indian, the, the part that I actually take great pride in reporting is that uh, this uh, contributions were, were uh, had continued through 1942 and 1943, even after there were famines in India. Amazing. Bengal and Madras presidencies suffered uh, famines. The Bengal famine is very, very famous. It's kind of almost comparable to the famine in Ukraine. And um, Holodomor, I think it's called in in, uh, uh, Polish-Ukrainian literature. 
the famine, the, the studies on the famine got the uh, Nobel Prize for economics for uh, Professor Martya Sen. So, and there is, you know, it's it's mentioned in the, in the reports that yes, the contributions have been less this year, you know, when they're talking about 1943, but they're coming in and we might be able to, you know, meet the require requisite expenses. And they did. And they did. <laughs> I'm really interested in the types of refugees that ended up. I mean, we've spoken about children. That's we know that children were accepted. But were there any other refugees that uh, that India accepted? Actually, yes. Um, <clears throat> India, the, the, the port city of Karachi had become a major transit point. Uh, for the Polish uh, citizenry who were evacuated out of uh, Russia, because there were some pressures on on the number of people present in uh, Iran, in Tehran, etc. So they were they were being you know encouraged to move out, maybe even forced. So Karachi had uh, had become a major transit camp, and uh, as far the far as the numbers are concerned, I'm I'm quoting Keith Sword over here. Uh, there were 32,000 uh, families, civilians. Out of the evacuation of 110,000, there was about 77,000 um, military personnel and around 32,000 uh, civilians, women and children, and 15,000 uh, orphan children. So out of these 32,000, actually 20,000 transited India, transited Karachi in, in various ways. And... Uh, these kids stayed, some of these kids stayed put. And then there was, uh, because the Balachari example became uh, such a good political mo uh, model, it, you know, it kind of just gave that little, um, what should I say, v very good option to the British. Because at that time, let's not forget that, that USSR was a, was a very important wartime ally. So here they could, uh, by following this example of putting the Polish people in territories which were not in direct control of the British, of UK, they were not knowing uh, their much-needed ally USSR, and yet able to give extend some succor to to Polish um, allies. So this model. Of, of sending people into, you know, areas which were subservient to, to the British, it, it's being replicated. So the camp at um, Kolhapur was all, is an example of that. That got set up in the same model because Kolhapur was also a princely state. And they also did the same thing in Nyasaland, British Nyasaland, which oh. is present-day Tanzania and part of Uganda. Uh, I think they had some sort of a, I'm not 100% sure, but they had some sort of an arrangement over there. And also that explains why Polish um, citizenry landed up in Mexico, you know. So oh, wow. they're not exactly in USA, but they, you know, they're close to USA in Mexico. So it's all a, a, a spin-off of the Balachari model. So, so getting back to your question, yes, there were there was a transit camp in in uh, Karachi, and then there was another camp for adults, which was uh, the truncated family, men of over military age and women, and you know truncated families and some children with a single parent um, at Kolhapur, which was also a princely state, but there you know the grip of the British was far stronger. It was a you know, ruled by a regency council, so they the the British had a much stronger stay, say in Kolhapur. So yeah. So who were um, Kira Vanasinska and Wanda Vanda? Sorry, Vanda Dinovska. Yeah, and how did they yeah. help the Polish refugees? So one more place for the Polish was also Mumbai, um, Bombay, and present-day Mumbai. The Polish uh, consulate was in Bombay. That's the first thing. So they set up certain facilities. Now this entire scheme, Kira Banashinska, now coming to Kira Banashinska, she was the wife of the first Polish consul general to India, uh, Dr. Eugene uh, Banashinsky. And... Uh, 
she became the delegate of the Polish Red Cross as soon as the war broke out. And uh, she is kind of the face of this entire uh, piece of history, actually, if one had to put a face to it. It, it, it should actually be Kira Vanishinska. Because she got everybody involved, you know, the moment the news came in, so all, you know, tying up the loose ends. Uh, it was, in fact, almost her brainchild that we are sending lorries with, with the Red Cross lorries with, with some comforts to Soviet Union, so why can't they bring the children out? Which is actually how the, the children reached India. They came by an overland route. There's a huge misconception going on in India, or it went on for a pretty long time. And I drew a flag, you know, I'm, I'm going aside over here. I drew a lot of flag from senior Trisiberian groups, you know, who said, why do they say we went by ship? Because somebody had somehow started this story of they went by ship. And <laughs> no names here, but I used to get a lot of flag. And I said, no you know, I got that's what all of us historians get. We'll put something out there and say something specific. And then everyone's like, no, you're wrong. However, this, but you're like, but I've got the evidence. It's right in front. This is what it is. I feel your pain. And you're, you're the last person who should be uh, blamed for these uh, strange twisted stories about boatloads that are, um, that are circulating at the moment. And, and sadly, they are still circulating. I, you know, Tim, I've actually gotten down to the bottom of it, and I, I really, it's not, it won't be very polite of me to say. It was just a certain amount of confusion that the royal family initially had, and we didn't have much knowledge of of, uh, of these episode, historic episodes, because we got, as Indians, we got so caught up with our independence. So I think, you know, it was the royal family and who probably put out these stories, and uh, they, they would get carried by the media, and here I was holding up the evidence and said, say, no, they came by a, by an overland route, you know. Everybody remembers an overland route, except once, you know, a small short boat ride, you know, um, from Quetta to, uh, to, to wherever, to, to Jamnagar. But uh, the stories have not gone. <laughs> and I sometimes get the flag. Of course, I've held it up. I've held up my peace play card hundreds of times to senior members of Chrissy Sikari. I said, please read my thesis. Please read my book. Please, you know, I, this is the map I put out. I have never ever ascribed to the book story. Kira close, worked very closely with Captain A.W.T. Webb, Archibald W.T. Webb, and got these camps up and functioning. And, and I have not answered your question about Wanda Dinovska. She was a She was a theosophist who was already present in India prior to World War II, and then she joined forces with with uh, with with uh, Kira and uh, was helping with the Red Cross activities. She ran the Indo-Polish Society uh, Library. She wrote books when the books were in various books were in short supply. She had a very good relationship with uh, Mahatma Gandhi, and she kept him appraised of the Polish situation. And both Kira and Wanda remained in India afterwards. Kira and her husband went to UK for a short while. They came back. Wanda remained. She is mentioned, she later on worked with Tibetan refugees and she's mentioned in some of uh, Dalai Lama's memoirs of the period. Wonderful. I I was not aware of that connection with Tibet. That's absolutely wonderful. Kira... And her husband, they went to, you know, once they, they, they went to the UK uh, and then they lost the diplomatic status. They didn't, they, you know, just didn't feel very comfortable. And they came back to India in 1946 or something. Uh, or pardon me if I got the year one or two years wrong, 1946 or 47. They came back to Mumbai because she, that's what she writes in her biography, that we had friends in India. And uh, they stayed put in India. They embraced Indian citizenship in 1964. They both have died in India, and they rest at the Mahalakshmi Cemetery in Mumbai. And Kira had been an Indian citizen for over 35 years when she was decorated with the Polonia Restituta in, in 2000 or 2001, when the new government came in in Poland. I mean, one of the first things they did is they came and they honored her. I need to say that 
I know very little about these two women. I've I've never even heard their names before till t- t- well today really, and um, I think they deserve so much more for what they did. Possibly, I possibly, I I think yes, because uh, you know it's very gracious of the Polish government and the Polish people who've started recognizing this piece of history. Uh, there is a school in the name of Maharaja Digvijay Singhji. And there is a, there's a town square in, I think they call it the Dobri Maharaja Square in, in, in Warsaw. I haven't seen okay. that one yet. So, because again, Maharaja Digvijay Singhji, Ranjit Singhji, you know, was, was too long and mouthful of a name. So I think they've shortened it. But, uh, yeah, I think, uh, possibly, I, I guess it's up to the people to, to, to do what they think, right? But they did play a very important role. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So then let's go back. Obviously, I asked the question a little bit early. So let's go back to that question that I asked a little bit early. So talking us through this journey that the children had, what did they face and, and where did they end up? Oh, these children, they, they really, you know, braved a hair-raising journey, absolutely. You know, my God. I think those parts are still quite uh, wild to this date. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, uh, you know, we have read reports that they, they were, you know, braving all sorts of conditions when some of them landed up at the uh, orphanages that were, or the collection centers that were organized by General Anders uh, in uh, USSR. So that there are there are reports of you know parents leaving their children at the orphanages that you know that they might have a better chance at survival. I mean they're very very heartbreaking stories. Believe me. I mean, during my research period, I mean I spent a lot of time you know almost in tears reading these accounts. Uh, so uh, there was this orphanage at Ashkabat. Uh, which uh, the uh, Stalin actually penciled in when the evacuation was was allowed. He penciled in this route, Ashkabat to Meshed, over the mountains. So these kids, they came across that. And one of the reports is of a little boy, I think a six-year-old or a eight-year-old maybe, I think it's six-year-old, who carried his two-year-old sister, 18-month-old sister on his back and walked miles to reach these collection centers. These are like, Oh Alina, these are heartbreaking stories, honestly. I mean, anyway. listening to a young boy carrying his baby sister for miles, I mean, it is heartbreaking. I, I can't imagine how many more stories you've got up your sleeves that would make our listeners cry. And me, and Tim, probably. Yeah. Actually, uh, these are some of them which are which I once read at at the collections, at the archival collections. I mean, I guess this must have been an absolutely tearjerker that the officer wrote it. You know, in his very stern military report, he, he actually mentioned the story of a six-year-old carrying his 18-month-old sister on his back for miles and reaching the collection center. But, you know, overall, when I used to hear the members, uh, yes, they, they, they were very, very difficult stories. Okay, now... Emotions aside. So they, they, they crossed over to Meshed. The British had given uh, a visa. Uh, there was the invitation for 500 children, but there were rules that they had to be quarantined and only when those who were not ill, they could make the very arduous overland journey to India. 
So, as I mentioned to you a little earlier, uh, the, uh, the these Polish Red Cross lorries were going, and it was Kira's uh, brainchild. And she said, if we are going to be sending these lorries, why should they all the way up to, you know, border of uh, Russia, USSR? Why should they come back empty? They should bring the kids on the return route. And everybody thought it was a very, very precarious and a dangerous idea. So uh, the Deputy Consul General, Dr. Tadeusz Lyszewski, I'm sorry if I've not got it, it's pronounced as L-I-S-E-S-C-K-I. I hope I've got the Lyszewski. Lyszewski, don't worry about it. Nobody minds. I've, I'm not going to sit there and nitpick. Okay. So Dr. Tadeusz Lyszewski, he traveled along with the convoy. And uh, in the convoy, from um, Meshed and there was this lady Hanka Ordonovna who, who was an actress I think in, of pre-war, of, of repute in pre-war uh, Poland and there was also this gentleman called Henrik Hadala I think a junior minister so they traveled in these uh, in this convoy of children and uh, they traveled down this road which was being built under the Lendley scheme from Bandarabas up. So they traveled on the section from Zahedan, Zahedan, Birjand, Shusp sector in late March. And yeah. uh, so they, they, there is memory of them celebrating Easter at, you know, on en route with the back of the truck search, uh, serving as an altar. So they, they just made the back of the truck and the altar and all the children stood below and someone offered some prayers. I, I, I think it's like almost if we are looking at Easter next weekend, we are looking at the story exactly eight years ago, almost to the date. Uh, the detail is there. I mean, the diarist, Franek Herzog, uh, who, whose diary forms a part of the second homeland, he's written a bit about it. He, he had this memory. So on 2nd of April 1942, they crossed over to Indian Territory at a place called Nokundi, which is now uh, in uh, Pakistan. It was undivided India at that time. And uh, then they drove across, reached Quetta Military Station, where uh, the, the group of children was met by uh, Madame Kira Banashinska and Captain A.W.T. Webb. So they, there they rested for some days. I mean, they offered a proper Thanksgiving mass. And, uh, then they went further to Delhi and, um, where they met some of the British officials. And at one of the receptions, uh, uh, they sang the British anthem, God Save the King. And with their very Polish, heavy Polish accents, uh, a lot of children, former children of Palachari, remember that it sounded more like God shaved the king. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> no, it's one of the lighter parts in this yeah. rather heavy story at times. <laughs> so, <laughs> forgive me too. But at least, you know, at least there's something that brings you cheer, you know. Yeah. Then they, 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 they took the train and they reached Bombay, present-day Mumbai, where Kira had um, uh, rented two bungalows, huge bungalows, and, uh, you know, boys and girls. And they rested there. And uh, they had been through a lot physically. So the children, they went through, you know, they were given people, you know, they, 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 my, the diary is Mr. Franek Herzog, late Mr. Franek Herzog, you know, he, he, he waxes eloquent about getting a clean bed with an orange over it. I mean, it meant so much to those children who had been through so much in the earlier years. I mean, just a clean bed, a fresh set of clothes and uh, two fresh sets of clothes and a clean bed entirely to themselves with an orange kept on it. I mean, the children were absolutely delighted over the moon. I mean, just imagine yeah. something so simple as that meant almost the world to them. Uh, so uh, they rested there for a couple of months. The children had health problems, so they were they were they went through medical checks. So those who were found to be with tuberculosis were sent to sanatoriums. 
uh, dental issues, septic tonsils, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all that health issues that a lot of growing up children and and they had been starved, so they had you know all kinds of problems. So six months they just rested in Bombay, and the camp in Balachari was still under construction at that time. So the royal family was kind of looking into it. Maharaja Jam Sahib, Digvijay Singh Ji. He had given the use of Balachari, which was his summer uh, residence. The, the grounds of the summer residence, were, he handed over for the for the setting up of the camp. And uh, <clears throat> it was constructed there. And once, uh, it was in July, I think, yes. It was sometimes in mid-July that the camp moved from uh, Mumbai to Balachari once it was completed. And there he was to greet the children along with the royal family. And uh, it seems he said that, okay, welcome to, to Navanagar. And you are no longer orphans, but Navanagris. And I am Bapu, which is father to all Navanagris, including you. And uh, this statement, I believe, had a very, very, I mean, I, I understand, had a very deep uh, emotive effect on these children who had lost their parents and they had been through so much struggle because a lot of people reported it. A lot of people reported it. Sticking yeah. with the subject, um, we've heard about this, this wonderful statement that he made um, that more than a few have reported hearing that you're no longer orphans. Um, did the royals continue to play a role um, after the welcoming, um, as the life in the camp continued. Absolutely, absolutely. Allow me to come to that. So, uh, you know, in the camp, uh, they they converted one of one of the barracks was of course converted into the hospital. Another was converted into the chapel, and uh, you know they needed doctors because there was they found some nursing staff. So Ma- Maharaja. Um, he he was regularly in, you know, he needed to know what was happening. So he appointed the wife of his ADC. His ADC was uh, Major Jeffrey Clark. And he appointed his wife, Mrs. Catherine Clark, as the liaison officer. So anything at all that the children needed, I mean, the, the camp administration needed, it was conveyed to him. So the first request that he, requ- you know, he received was that, the children, there is no place for a school. Uh, so it's very important, you know, the children have not been to school for such a long time. So immediately, one of the royal buildings, which was not in use in, in, in Balachari, was promptly given to the, to the camp to be used as a school. And there's a very, very lovely picture of the children and the, you know, all the children sitting in front of the school building. And uh, I wish I could share those pictures with you. And uh, thereafter, uh, you know, the, the camp administration took over all these, uh, <clears throat> its activities. And so church was in place, school was in place, next was scouting. So Lieutenant Peshkovsky was a, was a very important uh, visitor and uh, to the school, at, uh, yeah, to the camp as, as scoutmaster. So, uh, Maharaja, and then as the cultural activities started, they started picking up the cultural activities. The Maharaja's, uh, family, uh, they were, they were, they were, they would be, they would attend to, attend some of the cultural activities in, um, in the camp. And, uh, children were often invited to the, to the, uh, to the palace. So another thing that, that happened was, uh, when the hot summer came, I mean, they needed a place to swim because they were very close to the sea and which was not safe for the children to go. So he gave the use of his personal pool, which was adjacent to the palace for the children to use. And uh, it, it, it continued like this. There's a lot of interaction. There are very, very happy pictures of, you know, the children and Maharaja, uh, various cultural events, etc., but the most important thing that happened, which came a little later, of course, was towards 1944, I think, or for, yeah, I, I think it was 1944, when the the uh, when the new government came into uh, 
Poland or or a little after at the end of the war, uh, they were designated. All these children were designated as wards of the state. So they were to be repatriated back to Poland. And there was a lot of ferment. People didn't, the children didn't want to because, uh, you know, the experiences that they had had in Soviet Russia and uh, it, it was, you know, of the new government in Poland, they, did, they were not very trusting of that. So the bottom so, line uh, is that the British refused to acknowledge the Polish government in exile, but however yeah. did acknowledge the current Lublin government. So then yes. the Polish children had to be sent back. Yeah. So now, wait a minute. Let me just, yes, that is the b- bottom line. Correct. That. So that's where, again, Maharaja Jam Saheb has, plays a role, which is, uh, that, uh, you know, the camp commander, uh, Captain Pluta, he, he, he made this urgent uh, request that, you know, these kids cannot go back to the Lublin government, uh, country. So this cannot happen. So what do you do? So then, you know, they came to, came up with an idea that they formed an adoption council, which was, uh, headed by the Maharaja, Colonel Jeffrey Clark, and Captain Pluto. So they formed this adoption council. Captain Pluto is responsible for their moral well-being. So he he arranges with the convents in the U.S. The Orchard Lake Seminary accepts uh, the idea of taking on 34 boys. And the St. Bernardine Sisters of Pennsylvania, they accept the idea of taking 50 girls to their, into their mission active, mission centers. So this adoption council, what they do is, so Lieutenant Colonel Jeff, uh, Major Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Clark, later Lieutenant Colonel Jeffrey Clark, he liaises with the British and he organizes travel permits for these kids. So Colonel, uh, Captain Pluta has organized for these children to be, to go to the uh, USA. So Colonel Jeffrey Clark, he organizes, he liaises with the British and Maharaja Jam Sahib defrays the costs for their travel to the uh, U.S. And so that's how I think 84 children from Balachari camp uh, reached the USA to these uh, organized Polish seminary organizations there. And then the remaining were then transferred to the Kolhapur camp. So do we know what happened to many of them after the war? Do we have any accounts of their lives after India. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is a good platform to say, but because of the lack of funds, uh, to follow up on these 84 children who went to the USA. Uh, on, uh, so I really don't know. The, but I did meet some of the children who, who reached um, Poland. There's, some of them are still there. They're alive. And they were very warm. They received me very warmly. And they said life was very different under the uh, communist uh, government. It, it was it was different. But anyway, they, they, the best part is that they kept the memory alive. And uh, they came back and they installed the memorial plaque in Balachari as soon as it was permissible by the governments. And uh, there were a lot of people who reached uh, uh, UK. So... Uh, I could meet some of them and they were very, they received me very warmly. They, uh, a lot of them got education under the schemes that the Polish government had put together in, in the UK. And then there are people who, uh, reached Australia. This story is a, is a little difficult again. Uh, after the camp in, in, um, and then of course there were some people who, who reached um, Israel, Eretz Israel at that time, because there were Jewish children in the camps in India. So uh, we, 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 a very small number of them, we could find six of them, and uh, they're dealt with in the book, their story. So they, they were moved to Israel under the auspices of the um, Joint Distribution Authority, JDA. Everybody had a very different life trajectory in the different countries that they called home after India, which accepted them. 
it it was not but what is common throughout is that everybody across the board remembered india as a very happy place they they you know the title comes from from some statements that some of the survivors made to me that you know india was home to us it was the only place where we were children again after poland so it is it was the second homeland oh. i love this story but before we round off i know tim has got something he wants to tell us go for it tim i had the pleasure of meeting a gentleman um carol who was one of the maharaja's children and he now runs a, a vineyard and a bed and breakfast in australia and oh, he he absolutely loved uh the maharaja and he went back and they're still in touch with the maharaja's descendants and the maharaja's descendant i don't know if it was his son or grandson dropped everything to come and meet carol and his family um to show them round and this lovely bond is still carrying on to this day i've got to tell you there is a reason i've always wanted to go to india and now it has strengthened this need to go there about a hundred times so covid please go away so i can go and visit india and see some of these places if they still exist hopefully do they still exist yes very much very much but not exactly in the way the polish people had left them actually yes uh, you know when i was researching i had the honor of meeting uh, a survivor uh, mr stefan I, again i'm sorry i'm not klosowski uh, stefan klosowski he came from canada and he had retired as an engineer from pratt and whitney and uh, so one of the things that he did as soon as he kind of retired was to uh, come and pay quote and quote homage to india um because he said and he, uh, so that's where i got up with him when i was researching and I, and we have this very lovely pictures of three of us and we went visiting maharaja who very kindly uh, the the son of the former maharaja very pleasantly uh took us around his estate etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, yes now they they were actually very confused because i i remember i sat in in that conversation with them and maharaja the junior maharaja was very surprised that uh, these people were not jewish because they always thought that the children who came were jewish uh, that actually led to the first research paper on this topic by dr kenneth robbins because they had been told he had been told pretty almost authentically by the royal uh, family that oh we had a whole lot of jewish kids stay in in navanagar you know so he went around researching and he said there was a chapel there that that so dr ken's um, ken robbins paper is actually the first uh, uh, academic work on the subject from which i could take over Uh, so a lot of um, misunderstanding is definitely there but yes everybody remembers it very well and uh, it's a, actually a very very nice story i'm sorry i'm coming back to your question alina yes those places are there pretty much exactly in the same uh, use that was uh, done that is uh, the camp is now a military school and houses about the same number of children 650 children it's the sainik school of balachari and um, dr kem gave a whole lot of papers and then later on even i followed his footsteps to tell the school of its very historic uh, it's it's beautiful history so that is there it's a restricted area you it's a, it's a military school so you cannot really go there but you can visit it from morning to dawn to dusk that is what they have allowed and uh, the camp at kolhapur housed uh, the hindu population that came out of pakistan at the time of india's independence you know the victims of the partition which is in certain ways pretty comparable to the holocaust or or in some ways at least because that is the the partition of the indians of continent is the holocaust of the uh, of this part of the world it it's left a lot of people very 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 deeply scarred 
so the lot of refugees who came out from the partition were housed at the Kolhapur camp. And of course, it is now called Gandhinagar. They keep promising to keep it as clean as the poles did. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the old structures are still there. Some of the government structures are, are still there. Some are absolutely breaking apart because as for the reports that I had read, they, they, you know, they were just made of cheap material to just last a couple of years. Uh, temporary abode is what was created in that area by the Hindustan Construction Company. And they have lasted. I, I mean, I wish I could show you pictures. There are still some of the, 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 the school is still the school. There is the bit of the matting is still there during one of the reunions, I remember. I was there, you know, and uh, some of the survivors were there and they were like shedding copious tears, touching that, that matting and remembering, you know, all their days when somebody was like delighted as children because they met the old milkman who used to let them have milk for free. You know, they, they were like children. I mean, their river, the river Panchgani, you know, where they had had a bath, you know, they would go jumping, diving. So, or, or go to Panchgani, where they would go climbing, you know, scouting, and the stories of Shivaji that they had been told over there, the Indian uh, military hero of that part of the country. But what I saw as a neutral observer, you know, everywhere, whether in Poland or in UK or in India, there's just like a lot of good memories associated with their stay in India. You know, which is, I would say, you know, very, very nice because they had a hard life before and they had, a, you know, they had to grow up, take responsibility for themselves, you know, uh, after leaving India. So it couldn't have been, you know, all sunny. Anuradha, thank you so much. That was absolutely enlightening. Before we finish, can you just remind our listeners the name of your book? It's called The Second Homeland, uh, The Polish Refugees in India. If there was something I could do, I would change that Polish refugees to Polish exiles. I apologize, but I was young and stupid at that time and I chose that book. <laughs> That's okay. You are you are forgiven. From the whole Polish nation, I forgive you right now. Thank you so much. But honestly, I'm so fascinated. I want to know more. I desperately we now want to go to India and uh, I want to know more about the the Indian royal family that sparked an interest for me now as well. So thank you for sending me down that, that rabbit hole. And Tim, thank you so much for joining us and being a co-host today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank, both, you. thank, you, thank you so much, both of you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you both. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.